the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. James Blend is producing today's program, Clark Hilton Engineering. Looking forward to a conversation today with Dave Beckwith, author of I Love the World, It's the People I Can't Stand, Jonah's Journey of Brokenness, and yours. He'll be joining us later this hour. And then in the five o'clock hour, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. We're going to talk about the celebration that's coming on the 27th of November at the Downtown Bible Class. It's held at the Portland Art Museum every week, but that particular day is going to be special because it also happens to be Louise Palau's 85th birthday. There's going to be a celebration and you'll have an opportunity to see and hear from Luis Palau and learn a little bit more about how he's doing and what the future holds for him. Uh, We'll uh, talk with uh, Pastor Scott about that in the uh, five o'clock hour. So I'm looking forward to sharing that conversation with you. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines in a um, pilloried house chamber at about 10 a.m. Eastern time today. In the shadow of the 2020 presidential and congressional elections, House Democrats hosted the first public hearing involving the potential impeachment of a president since November 19, 1998. And they insist they're not happy about it, although there is just that tinge of giddiness. Behind the scenes, House Democrats are predicting a phenomenal week. You can judge for yourselves. It was on most of the day uh, today, or at least the early part of the day. At the same time, Republicans have been preparing a methodical and vigorous cross-examination of Democrats' witnesses, whose accounts of President Trump's alleged wrongdoing have been based largely on hearsay and intuition, according to critics. More on that uh, later in the program. Well, with the bang of a gavel, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff opened that impeachment hearing today into the alleged pressure on Ukraine to investigate presidential candidate Joe Biden's dealings in the country, along with his son. The former vice president has boasted about pressuring Ukraine to fire its top prosecutor as his son, Hunter Biden, held a lucrative role on the board of a Ukrainian natural gas company, despite having little relevant expertise. An anonymous whistleblower's complaint about Trump's July 25th telephone call with Ukraine. Ukrainian President Zelensky uh, invited or rather ignited the impeachment investigation or at least this latest iteration of it during the hearing on Wednesday a key exchange during the 30 minute call which has been uh, outlined in a September 24th transcript released by the White House uh, took center stage although not as much as the testimony of the uh, two assembled officials who were there. Democrats say Trump wanted the investigation in exchange for the release of about $400 million in military aid to Ukraine. The president, Democrats allege, tried to use the power of his office to pressure a foreign government into helping him politically. Zelensky has uh, said he felt no pressure during the call. Trump has said the call was perfect and contained no quid pro quo uh, or this for that. Shortly after Schiff's gavel, he and intelligence panel uh, ranking member, uh, uh, Devin Nunez uh, began the questioning. They each got 45 minutes or they designated staff attorneys to ask those questions as well. Members of the panel have five or rather had five minutes each to question witnesses, alerting 
whether alternating between Republicans and Democrats. Well, Democrats chose Ambassador Bill Taylor, the U.S. charge uh, the affairs in Ukraine, and George Kent, Deputy Assistant Secretary for of State for Europe, to kick off the public hearings. The two described the foreign policy toward Ukraine led by the Trump um, attorney Rudy Giuliani and other White House officials. This is really the first public appearance, but the second appearance before the committee. Democrats also uh, said that Taylor had the best view of the scheme. He is a habitual note taker. He is your worst nightmare. Very prepared still. Taylor wasn't on the phone call between Trump and Zelensky. And I think listening to the conversation, it was second or third hand, the information that he referenced. Um, Kent, a career foreign service officer, testified on the 15th of October. Uh, There were three words Trump wanted to hear from the Ukrainian president, investigations, Biden and Clinton. He also told the investigators about the campaign of smears Giuliani led against former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, uh, Marie Yovanovitch. That led to her being recalled from the position. Ivanovich is set to testify on Friday. Jared Kushner, President Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor, and other White House officials are planning to set up web cameras to live stream construction along the border wall. According to a report, Kushner first offered the proposal during a July meeting, pitching the idea as a way to confront criticism that Trump is not following through on his signature 2016 campaign promise. The Washington Post reported, citing unnamed officials. We'll see whether or not that pans out. And President Trump and Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan met today amid a strained relationship between the two NATO allies. Turkey has rebuffed the U.S. and is turning toward Russia on security issues. And Ankara is facing a Washington backlash over attacks on Kurdish civilians during its incursion into Syria last month. Erdogan and Trump face an agenda that includes Turkey's decision to buy a Russian air defense system and its attack on U.S. allied Kurdish forces in northern Syria. On Tuesday, the Turkish leaders issued a chilling threat to Europe over looming sanctions over Ankara. Kara's unauthorized drilling in the Mediterranean. Penalize us and we'll release ISIS prisoners back to European countries. Republican Mark Sanford has abandoned his presidential primary run against the president. And Hillary Clinton continues to fuel speculation that she will run in 2020. Or perhaps it's the many, many, many voices in her head urging it. Study. Elizabeth Warren's plan would hike the deficit $15 trillion and create soaring demand for health care. And uh, border arrests have fallen again in October, down from 75, um, down almost 75 percent since May. And a U.S. court has ruled against warrantless searches of phones, laptops of international travelers. A man who slashed baby Trump balloon first time. That's apparently the name of the thing. Um, uh, they're mad about uh, chopping up the baby. I don't know if it's because it was an image of a child or what the uh, the beef is, but. Nonetheless, the man who did slash baby Trump is in trouble, even from those on the left. Taking a look at what happened on this day in history, rather uh, start with 1789. Benjamin Franklin writes in a letter to a friend, Jean-Baptiste Leroy, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Coined by Benjamin Franklin, 1789. On this day in history, 1942, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signs a measure lowering the minimum uh, draft age from 21 to 18. On this day in history, 1956, the year I was born, the Supreme Court strikes down laws calling for racial segregation on public buses. On this day in 1969, speaking in Des Moines, Iowa, Vice President Spiro Agnew accuses network television news departments of bias and distortion and urges viewers to lodge complaints. 
The following September, he would refer to the media as nattering nabobs of negativism. Mm. On this day in history, 2001, President George W. Bush approves the use of a special military tribunal that could put accused terrorists on trial faster and in greater secrecy than in ordinary criminal courts. On this day, also in 2001, President Bush and Russian President Vladimir Putin meet at the White House where they pledged to slash Cold War era nuclear arsenals by two thirds. And finally, on this day in 2013, the Obama administration reveals that just 26,794 people enrolled for health care insurance during the first flawed months of operation for the federal Obamacare website. More than 79,000 others have signed up in the 14 states with their own websites. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this Wednesday afternoon. Portions of today's program are brought to you by Zero Res. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with the author of I Love the World, It's the People I Can't Stand, Jonah's Journey of Brokenness and Yours. David Beckwith will be my guest. Well, diplomats testifying on the opening day of the impeachment inquiry hearings, at least the public version of it, delivered a stark account today of President Trump's pursuit of political investigations in Ukraine. And attorney general or rather attorney, he's not the attorney general, Rudy Giuliani, alleged uh, meddling in that country. While Republicans panned the entire process as a low rent Ukrainian sequel to the Russia collusion case and hit back at the claims as mere hearsay. These were not firsthand accounts. For his part, the president spent much of the day with uh, Turkish President Erdogan saying he was um, too busy to uh, watch the historic hearings. And he released a video declaring they're trying to stop me because I'm fighting for you and I'll never let that happen in quote. Well, it's ultimately not up to him, but fireworks did spark from the very opening of the hearing as GOP representative Devin Nunez accused Democrats of running a scorched earth war against the president. Republicans also ripped into Schiff after the Democrat interrupted GOP questioning to say a witness should be cautious about answering questions that assume facts not in evidence before him. Interestingly enough, these folks were testifying on things that they did not hear firsthand. So it was a rather um, stinging rebuke. But in between the sparring among lawmakers was extensive testimony from the two lead off witnesses, State Department official George Kent and top U.S. diplomat of Ukraine, Bill Taylor. Taylor testified most notably for the first time that the president was overheard by a member of his staff on the 26th of July asking EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland about the investigations, to which Sondland responded that the Ukrainians were ready to move forward. Taylor said that following Sondland's call with Trump, the member of his staff, Staff asked what Trump thought about Ukraine. Ambassador Sondland responded that President Trump cares more about the investigations of Biden, which Giuliani was pressing for, Taylor said, revealing new information from his prior testimony last month. At the time I gave my uh, my deposition on the 22nd of October, I was not aware of this information. I am including it for completeness, end quote. Well, this conversation would have taken place a day after the now infamous phone call the president had with President Zelensky, in which he sought a, pro- uh, sought a probe into alleged Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election and of Joe Biden's role in ousting a prosecutor who had been looking into Burisma, where his son Hunter Biden 
had a lucrative role on the board. Taylor made clear it was his understanding the term's investigations and uh, indeed referred to the Biden family in Burisma. Trump is accused of not only pressing Kiev to look into these issues, but potentially linking the request to U.S. military aid to Ukraine, something the president denies. Taylor's testimony would offer another account linking Trump to the pursuit of those probes and to Giuliani's controversial involvement abroad. Taylor also repeated his prior closed-door testimony that he understood critical U.S. aid was being held up along with a Zelensky White House meeting over the investigation issues. However, the newly revealed phone call did not by itself address any quid pro quo. The security assistance, not just the White House meeting, was conditioned on the investigations, he said. He was told, again, secondhand account, Republicans sought to undercut the Democratic case by saying the Ukraine aid was ultimately released without any of the investigations sought by the president, arguing that um, shows no quid pro quo took place. Ohio GOP Representative Jim Jordan referenced three separate meetings Ukraine's president held with U.S. officials, saying there's no evidence participants discussed the linkage of security assistance dollars in return for any investigation of the Bidens. Taylor confirmed that that was, in fact, the case. Jordan also got Taylor to acknowledge he's never met Trump and stress that Zelensky did not announce the investigation, saying your clear understanding was obviously wrong because it didn't happen. Republicans were quick to point out that Taylor was not providing firsthand information. At one point, Taylor said, I don't know what president or candidate Trump was thinking about the Ukrainians. Well, during one combative exchange, Texas Representative John Radcliffe asked the diplomats if they believe Trump committed an impeachable offense. Neither would say that's not what uh, Either of us are here to do, Taylor said. This is our job. The White House further argued that Taylor offered hearsay and hearsay and accused House Democrats of basing their entire sham on what amounts to a game of telephone. Republicans also lamented that Democrats aren't allowing the anonymous whistleblower who filed the complaint that ignited the inquiry to testify with Jordan saying uh, they should have the person who started it, a Democrat on the committee, Vermont Representative Peter Welch, shot back. I'd like to see the person who started it come testify, President Trump. Representative uh, Eric Swalwell also asked both men if they were never Trumpers, as Trump has claimed. Both men denied it. Meanwhile, during Kent's testimony, he clarified that while he had raised concerns of a conflict of interest over Hunter Biden's role on the board of the Ukrainian natural gas firm Burisma Holdings during February of 2015, he did not see any effort from the U.S. officials to protect the firm from criticism or investigation. My concern was that there was the possibility of a perception of a conflict of interest Kent said during questioning from Republicans. He also said he would like to see Ukraine investigate other accusations involving a corrupt prosecutor and Burisma. Both officials voiced concerns about the involvement of Giuliani. Kent alleged that that he was trying to gen up political motivated investigations. Taylor said Giuliani and others were involved in a highly irregular diplomatic channel in Ukraine that eventually diverged with the more formal channel. If there was a big loser, I think Giuliani might have been in for this day's hearing. Meanwhile, Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff outlined the parameters of the impeachment inquiry, questioning whether the president sought to condition official acts and exploit Ukraine's vulnerability for personal political gain. The matter is as simple and as terrible as that, Schiff said on Wednesday. Our answer to those questions will affect not only the future of this presidency, but the future of presidency itself, and what kind of conduct or misconduct the American people may come to expect from the commander-in-chief. Schiff described the core of the impeachment inquiry and said, if this is not impeachable conduct, what is? Well, that's the point of the hearings to determine if it is and 
uh, whether or not it's worthy of being uh, moved forward before the whole House. But committee ranking member Devin Nunez staunchly defended the president and his actions, blasting Democrats for their scorched earth war against President Trump and calling the impeachment inquiry a carefully orchestrated media smear in its fourth year. Prior to shifts wearing in the uh, witness, Republicans, including Representative Elise uh, Stefanik uh, and Jordan challenged Schiff to schedule a hearing with the anonymous whistleblower whose complaint sparked the impeachment inquiry. They also accused Schiff of being the only member of the House, along with his staff, to know the identity of the whistleblower. Schiff fired back, saying he doesn't know the identity of that individual, though his staff has had contact with the whistleblower. White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham, meanwhile, she blasted the hearing as a sham and a colossal waste of taxpayer time and money. For the Democrats, Daniel Goldman and Daniel Noble, both counsels for the Intelligence Committee, were tapped to handle uh, portions of the questioning. On the Republican side, Steve Castor, whom Jordan brought over from the Oversight Committee, uh, was counseled to pose questions for the minority. At the center of the impeachment inquiry, which began in September, is Trump's July 25th call with Zelensky. The president's request came after millions in U.S. military aid to Ukraine had been frozen, when, uh, Demo- which Democrats and some witnesses have cited as quid pro quo. It was argued that the Ukrainians weren't aware of the fact that those funds were being held up, uh, but uh, they were released without any um, action on the part of the Ukrainian government. Zelensky says that he felt no pressure during the call. The White House has maintained no wrongdoing with the president calling the call perfect and arguing that it contained no quid pro quo. Well, the House has moved on from quid pro, at least the House Democrats, from that to other things. The whistleblower's complaint also states their concern that the president was soliciting a foreign power to influence the 2020 presidential election, a concern that Taylor directly testified uh, to privately last month. During his closed-door deposition, he testified that he understood that the reason for investigating Burisma was to cast President, rather former Vice President Biden in a bad light. Taylor added that it would benefit a political campaign for the reelection of President Trump. This was his opinion, not based on what he had direct knowledge of, however, which he admitted. Meanwhile, Schiff has already teed up three days of additional public hearings next week which among other witnesses includes three sought-after witnesses by the Republicans, ex-National Security Council official Tim Morrison, former Ukraine envoy Kurt Volker, and high-ranking State Department official David Hale. Republican lawmakers have sought a slew of other witnesses, including Hunter Biden and the whistleblower, but it's not yet clear whether any will be permitted to testify by Democrats on the committee as part of that inquiry. And Republicans must get their permission before they are allowed to Uh, interview those witnesses. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Dave Beckwith. He's the author of I Love the World, It's the People I Can't Stand, Jonah's Journey of Brokenness, and, well, yours. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. My next guest writes that brokenness is God's loving process to shape us. He initiates our rehabilitation through broken dreams, loss of work, business failure, divorce, anger, you know, the stuff that happens. Uh, In other words, he suggests that brokenness is a good thing and God uses it to refine us. Using the story of Jonah as a backdrop, Dave Beckwith, my next guest, methodically explains how we often run from God instead of toward him. And learning to surrender to the will of God is a process. When Jonah was saved from his own uh, self-imposed assisted suicide, God gave him the same instructions as before. This time he obeyed and did as God instructed. The results were obviously not what he expected and the people repented. 
Well, we'll talk more about that. The book is titled, I Love the World, It's the People I Can't Stand, Jonah's Journey of Brokenness and Yours. Dave Beckwith earned degrees from Biola University, Talbot School of Theology, including a Ph.D. in Church and Family Ministry. He served as a lead pastor at Woodbridge Church in Irvine, California, for more than 20 years. He is co-author of Your Winning Edge, God's Power Perfected in Weakness. He is U.S. Western Regional Director of Standing Stone Ministry, which cares for spiritual leaders. He and his wife and their two married daughters uh, live in Southern California, and he joins us today to talk about his latest book, I Love the World, It's the People I Can't Stand, Jonah's Journey of Brokenness and Yours. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Georgie. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Now, you start the book by saying that, um, I should say, saying the... Pardon? We've got a uh, recording coming in to somebody speaking. Somebody speaking. Okay, I'm going to put you on hold and see if we can... No, my engineer says don't do that. What would you have us do, Clark? (laughs) All right, it's gone away now. It's gone away, okay. (laughs) Hi, Georgie. Well, I apologize. (laughs) That can be disorienting. Good to be able to talk with you. (laughs) I usually get a laugh whenever I... Share the title. I love the world. It's people I can't stand. <laughs> Sadly, I think many of I us love, can relate I to love, it. I love humor. I love great stories. So the book is packed with both humor and stories wrapped around biblical truth. So yeah. Now you yeah. start by saying the book of Jonah is about God's compassion for the undeserving, and it certainly is that. Um, why do you think uh, Jonah was so reluctant? If we know something about the people, we might have a clue. But why was he so reluctant? Well, uh, two things. Uh, one, I think he had a deep-rooted prejudice uh, against Ninevites, and I don't know whether something had happened in his past that, that formed that part of the Jews were enemies with them, but maybe he had somebody in the family killed by the Anyway, he had a deep-seated prejudice, but more importantly, he had a paranoia um, of them that uh, uh, in the Ninevites, um, were the terrorists of the day. Uh, today's terrorists have absolutely nothing over uh, the things that went on with the Ninevites. They would skin people alive, they'd put, <clears throat> cut hands off, put out eyes, um, hang their hides on a wall, and uh, I'm, I'm sure Jonah is like, uh, and you want me to go <laughs> to preach to these terrorists? Uh, and uh, so I think it was uh, pretty unthinkable in his mind. No, absolutely. And I'm sure there was some fear wrapped up in there, too. The thought of being skinned alive is not a very attractive uh, thing to contemplate. You encourage your readers to love the person or persons with whom we are most irritated, the one that maligns us or misuses us, which is certainly consistent with the gospel, but a tremendous um, challenge. What's the secret, if there is one, to doing that? Well, I think we all have that that challenge, and most of us would probably uh, say, well, I'm, I love the world, I love people, I love my friends, and then there'd be a pause, and we go, except for, and there's always some uh, somebody that gets under our skin, a crazy maker who drives us batty or strikes fear in our heart. And the love of God that is resident in our hearts, God wants to spill that love through us to be able to love the unlovable. And that's the process that is called brokenness. And when we go through some of our own experiences of brokenness, uh, God then can display his love through us. As I mentioned in the introduction, our tendency is to run away from God when we are experiencing the brokenness, as you've just 
uh, described it, when in fact we would do much better if we would run toward him. Why do you think um, fear is such a major part of uh, that that tendency? And how do we break the grip of fear uh, that not only prevents us from obeying God in loving the unlovable or those who would call themselves our enemies and running away from him in the midst of our most needy uh, moments. Yeah, fear is a, a powerful motivation, uh, a powerful emotion uh, in our life. And uh, learning to be able to deal with it, I, I like the comment of baseball player Stephen Wright when he said, what happens if you get scared half to death twice? <laughs> so, and, you know, Jonah, Jonah was afraid. And uh, uh, the thing that I, I say as I identify it is, one, to identify the fear, uh, shift your focus from don't fear people and face the future with, with faith instead of fear. Uh, fear is is like a, a bully in our lives, and it prances around and de- demands that we bow down to the fears, and we have a choice. Do we bow down to God, or do we bow down to the fear? And when we surrender that fear to God, uh, the bully will flee, And uh, but we have to keep continuously uh, doing that. So fear is a very powerful emotion, yes. A bit, one of the major messages in your book is that crises, crises rather, often lead to change. We want to avoid them whenever possible because we perhaps don't understand the value in them and how God uses them to refine us. Uh, talk a little bit about that, that notion that through many dangers, toils, and snares, uh, we are conformed to the image of Christ and he, he changes us. There's there's a lot of things that we go through in our life, and they, they don't seem to make sense at the time. And uh, uh, God is faithfully working in our working in our lives to uh, bring out His beauty as we go through pressure and through a tough time. So um, now you can say, you know, crisis leads to a change. Well, not necessarily. Some people live their entire life in a crisis, okay, and they never change. So you can do that, but crisis is a time that that God is uh, wanting to draw close to us. He is a far away. He wants to be near to you. He wants to walk with you through that trial, whatever it happens to be. You go into some detail in uh, in your book. I love the world. It's the people I can't stand. Jonah's journey of brokenness and yours. Uh, telling the story of Jonah. Now, many of us remember it from Sunday school, but may not remember some of the more important details. Uh, review for us the story of uh, Jonah uh, and uh, how these events unfolded. Well, Jonah uh, was commanded by God to go preach to the to the Ninevites, and he did the most senseless thing imaginable. He, he had to be the opposite direction to what most of us uh, see as to have been ancient Spain. And then he's on a ship, and the ship is uh, uh, sinking. Uh, the interesting thing is Jonah's laying down in the, in the hold of that ship, sleeping in a storm that I think would probably be, probably be a Category 3, if not a 4 or 5 hurricane. And uh, I, I asked the question, how did he ever sleep through that, you know? <laughs> and... Uh, um, so anyway, uh, once he's aroused, why then um, they find out he's he's a culprit, and uh, they throw Jonah overboard, and the sea is instantly calm, and then Jonah is uh, swallowed by a fish or a whale, 
And I do quite a little in there. It's very interesting as to what the possibility might be, whether it's a fish or a whale, and what is some of the modern research on that. And, of course, he vomited out of the fish and given the same command the second time, go to Nineveh. As time he went, he preached. Uh, preached where I think it was a lousy sermon. <laughs> it was there's no introduction, there's no humor, there's no, it's a downer all the way. And God used that so astoundingly uh, with the greatest uh, movement that we have of people turning to God uh, in the Old Testament times. And uh, then after things all over, He's in a in a bad funk and um, um, angry because the Ninevites did repent, and then God didn't destroy them. So uh, uh, we, we have an interesting time there with the fourth chapter of Jonah. Yeah, he does precisely what he is commanded to do. The outcome that God was looking for is the result, and Jonah's a little put out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. So. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking about the book. I love the title. I love the world. It's the people I can't stand. Jonah's journey of brokenness and yours. There's certainly a lot uh, to be learned about our journey as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue my conversation with Dave Beckwith in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with uh, Dave Beckwith, author of I Love the World, It's the People I Can't Stand, Jonah's Journey of Brokenness and Yours. Now, before we move forward in the story of uh, Jonah and his brokenness, um, let's talk a little bit about how Jonah prayed while he was in the belly of that great whale. What can we learn from his example under the stress of having uh, disobeyed, running away from God's call, and then finding himself in a rather tragic uh, circumstance? Well, I don't think Jonah waited three days to get down to praying. Yeah. I think he was praying, praying as he was sliding down the esophagus. Uh, I think it was a prayer, one of the greatest prayers you ever pray is when you're in a, a total panic and crisis, and uh, he's certainly at that point. Uh, we might call that foxhole praying. Sometimes people uh, question uh, conversions that are so-called foxhole uh, conversion. Um, and sometimes they may not mean what they pray at that point or follow through on it. However, most of us go through a foxhole experience along the way, a moment of panic. And uh, Jonah was doing some real praying. And uh, God was really, really dealing with his heart. And so uh, uh, that was real praying that Jonah was doing. When we when we recognize our own brokenness, um, and we are forced, if you will, uh, to fall to our knees and cry out to God. What can we learn from Jonah in his circumstance, his desperation, that can help us? Well, there's several things. One, uh, when we're when we're t- in total crisis, it'll seem like God is so distant and so far away, which is not the, the, the truth. He is very close. He's very near. And Jonah discovered the very nearness of God and in a lot of ways, God was shouting, I love you, Jonah. You know, I could I could line up other people to go do the job. I don't have fun that. I love you as a person. And when we're going through a crisis to hear God saying that to you, I love you. I care for you. I'm, I'm not far away, though it may seem that way to you right now, but I am here. I, I do love you, and I'm right by your side. What is uh, spiritual rehab, and why is brokenness a good thing? Now, we see that Jonah has come to his senses, 
uh, although he's at his lowest point and it takes that to bring him back to uh, his senses. Talk a bit about spiritual rehab as you do in the book and brokenness and how that can be a benefit and is intended to be beneficial for us. Well, I, I, the title, <laughs> the chapter when Jonah uh, is swallowed by the, the fish, I, I entitled that Checking Into Rehab. And this was his rehab center. The honest truth is we all need rehab. It may not be in a facility. Uh, it may not be from drugs or alcohol or whatever like that. But we all need rehab in some ways. And uh, I came into our marriage with buried anger and depression. I grew up in a very dysfunctional dysfunctional home. I couldn't handle criticism. Uh, when Joanne married me, I came packaged with all my issues. And so a lot of my stories woven into this book. Joanne was a psychiatric nurse who married a great little fixer-upper, and I needed rehab. <laughs> and uh, Joanne, quite the opposite, didn't have any of the, the addictive uh, behaviors that we usually associate with rehab. But she realized her need, and she worked through the, the Christian 12 steps, releasing her need to be controlling. And she said, when I release control and surrender to God, things go much better, and I am at peace. Mm. Now, you may have already answered this question, but I think it bears uh, being more specific. What role does humility play in this transformation from brokenness when we are at our lowest point and we're crying out to God? Yes. um, God brings us to that point so that he will be glorified in our life and... uh, uh, not not ourselves, and brings us to humility. Uh, without brokenness, it's very easy to drift along, self-sufficient, uh, seemingly strong, judgmental, self-righteous, demanding of others and often blaming them, and unmoved by the pain of others, and kind of an all-around nuisance to live with. But when God works his plan of brokenness, we become the, the sweetness of the Spirit of God uh, pours out from our life, and it's a beautiful thing. Now, Jonah had his odyssey in the belly of a whale. You, on the other hand, had a significant fall. My understanding is you fell some 40 feet, and that, of course, turned into a, a personal lesson through the very hard way. Tell us a bit about your circumstance and uh, what that taught you. Yes, um, like I I explained this book is in many ways my own journey of brokenness. Mm -hmm. uh, As my first senior pastor experience, there were a lot of good things that happened, but overall I was hurt and wounded. And I left that to do some camp ministry and told God I didn't want to be a senior pastor ever again. I said, I want to serve you. I'll serve you in other capacities. But my fear, like Jonah had fear, was such that I did not want to be a senior pastor again. I kept having churches contact me and say, would you consider being senior pastor? One church contacted me several times. Anyway, um, so God had to deal with my will. My will. Um, I took a speaking engagement up in Northern California uh, and uh, uh, arrived the first night and then went out for a walk after speaking for the first session and I was probably a half mile from the camp. I turned off my flashlight looking at the stars and uh, just enjoying the coolness of a summer evening. Took a few steps, and before I knew it, I was airborne. Mm. And I was fall- pre-falling into a, a uh, 40-foot uh, 
a 40-foot fall into a creek bed that was down below. <sighs> and I came crashing in. I felt the shockwave go up through my back. I knew instantly that I had been injured. Uh, I broke my back in three places. I broke a left shoulder. And here I am in a canyon. Um, I am with my preacher's voice. I'm still too far from camp to be heard. I'm the speaker for the camp, so I'm in a cabin by myself. Nobody's either going to know that I'm, I'm missing or gone. There were no cell phones in those days uh, to speak of. And so God and I did some serious praying as I was there on the ground in that 40-foot, uh, after that 40-foot fall. And I, ke- I kept praying. I'd try to get up on my feet, and I would fall back to the ground, and I did not know what I was going to do to be rescued. Finally, I was able to get up just barely onto my my feet, um, and I began to hobble, uh, just creeping along. And my only hunch was that perhaps that canyon cliff would, would come down. So for about two or three hours, I headed downstream, just hobbling along, and finally came to a place where the cliff was only about the height of a desk. And I rolled up on that in excruciating pain and then headed back uh, towards the camp. It's it's absolutely astounding how in the world I, I could even do that mm-hmm. back in three places, you know. And so uh, some camp counselors saw, saw me when I came in, realized I was hurt and took me into the hospital. Anyway, after that, I had six weeks laying flat and a lot of time to really uh, reassess my no to what God had been telling me. And I finally came to the point of saying, yes, Lord, I'm willing, whatever that happens to be. And before long, I was senior pastor of that church that had been contacting me and then continued on with uh, what's been over 30 years of uh, senior pastor ministry. Mm. Well, there's so much more to um, I Love the World. It's the people I can't stand that our time won't permit us to get into. But focusing on Jonah's journey of brokenness and our own can really help us to press into God and to glean everything he intends to teach us through that very long and sometimes excruciating and arduous process. I so appreciate your sharing Jonah's story, but also your own uh, in this remarkable little book. Thank you so much for talking with us tonight. Okay. Thank you, Georgine. Appreciate it. God bless. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up here in just a few moments. Also in the second hour, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. He is from Southwest Bible Church, but also the teacher at Downtown Bible Class. We're going to talk about a special birthday celebration that's coming up this month for Luis Palau. He's turning 85. We'll bring you up to date. How is he doing anyway? You wonder, what's the prognosis? How is he doing? What might we expect in the days ahead? We'll talk with Pastor Scott about all of that when he joins us in the five o'clock hour. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Coming up later this hour, in fact, I'll give you a little hint, next segment, Pastor Scott Gilchrist will join us. He's the senior pastor at Southwest Bible Church, and he is the Bible teacher at Downtown Bible Class. They're going to be celebrating the 85th birthday of Luis Palau later this month. Wednesday, November 27th, at the Downtown Bible Class. They meet at the Portland Art Museum, to which you are cordially invited. I would love to see a huge crowd come and celebrate the life and legacy of 
Luis Palau as he celebrates his 85th birthday. We'll tell you all the important details on that when Pastor Scott joins me in our next segment. So listen up for some uh, details on that. Well, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was absent from oral arguments before the high court uh, this morning due to an illness. The court said Ginsburg, who is 86, remained home because of a stomach bug. While not having the opportunity to question attorneys during the argument, she will be involved in deciding the cases. In fact, she's overseen a number of them in her absence. Justice Ginsburg is unable to be present today, we were told. She is indisposed due to illness, but she will participate in the consideration and decision of the cases on the basis of the brief and the transcripts or recordings of the oral arguments. That's a quote from Chief Justice John Roberts from the bench. Well, those uh, cases are Comcast Corporation versus National Association of African-American-owned media at all, and Ritson Group, Inc., versus Jackson Masonry. Well, Ginsburg had, uh, has had two separate bouts with cancer in the last year. Her recovery from lung cancer surgery caused her to miss court sessions in January. They were her first absences from arguments in a quarter century as a justice. She had a radiation treatment for a tumor in her pancreas in August. Well, after that treatment, Ginsburg later appeared at the National Book Festival in August, saying, as this audience can see, I am alive and I'm not on my um, and I'm on my way rather to being very well. So again, we're told she has a stomach bug. Uh, Just uh, hope and uh, pray for the full recovery of Justice Ginsburg. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments on Tuesday in three cases challenging the Trump administration's attempt to roll back the Obama era Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program or DACA. Uh, President Obama had previously explained that such a program was beyond the scope of the executive branch's authority, saying in an interview, I'm not the emperor. My job is to execute laws that are passed. And Congress right now has not changed what I consider to be a broken immigration system. That was a quote from the president who then um, did just that. Nevertheless, the administration went on to create the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program in 2012, allowing about 700,000 illegal aliens who came to the United States as children to apply for work authorization and deferred uh, deportation. Well, fast forward to 2017, and the Trump-led Department of Homeland Security announced it would roll back the program that uh, likely violated the Constitution's separation of powers as well as federal immigration laws. Well, as justification, it pointed to court rulings in validating a related program for illegal alien parents of U.S. citizens or lawful permanent residents. Well, the rollback decision drew immediate legal challenges all across the country, and three district courts ruled against the administration. Well, in the course of the litigation, then-Secretary of Homeland Security Kirsten Nielsen, she issued a memorandum more fully explaining the administration's reason for rolling back DACA, including that it will likely, it is rather, a likely unlawful and also runs counter to the agency's law enforcement. Um, Well, now at the Supreme Court, the justices were faced uh, with deciding whether it's reasonable for the president to abandon an arguably unlawful program put in place by a predecessor. Well, the Trump administration argues that the federal law bars review of agency enforcement decisions, such as the DACA rollback, that are committed to agency discretion by law. But if the decision is reviewable, the administration maintains that it was rational to abandon an unlawful program. Well, some of the key exchanges in the oral arguments in the case 
Is DACA rollback reviewable by courts? Well, Justice Elena Kagan asked why the underlying DACA policy would be reviewable by courts, but the rescission of that policy would not be. Are you suggesting that there's an asymmetry in what's reviewable? She asked the Solicitor General, Noel Francisco. He replied that neither side is arguing that the Immigration and National, uh, Nationality Act somehow restricts our ability to enforce the law. And it would be quite surprising if Congress were to pass a law that says something is illegal and then tries to somehow restrict the government's ability from enforcing the laws that it passes. Well, in essence, the administration argued that DACA deviated from federal immigration laws and that its rollback would bring the government back into compliance with the law. Another question, how strong are DACA's reliance interests? Well, Justice Samuel Alito asked about whether this action would remove certain benefits, and Francisco explained, again, that's the Solicitor General, uh, explained that benefits expire on their own terms because DACA did not actually confer any benefits. Justice Gorsuch wanted to know about uh, how much DACA recipients relied on the program continuing had the administration adequately considered these reliance interests. Well, the Solicitor General, Francisco, asserted that to the extent there are any reliance interests, they're extremely limited. The DACA program was always meant to be a temporary stopgap measure that could be rescinded at any time, which is why it was only granted for a two-year increment. He explained, so I don't think anybody could have reasonably assumed that DACA was going to remain in effect in perpetuity. Well, Justice Stephen Breyer asked about the reliance interests of business employing uh, DACA recipients. Francisco said Nielsen's memo explicitly considered these reliance interests when making the determination to roll back DACA. He also pointed out that the, uh, the other side has argued that we could rescind DACA at any time, at least in their review. We did provide a little bit more detail of the explanation. Well, Gorsuch asked Ted Olson, the lawyer representing DACA recipients, about reliance interests and why government's rationale for rolling back DACA was supposedly insufficient. What good would another five years of litigation over the adequacy of that explanation serve? What more would you have the government say about the reliance interest? Well, Olson responded that there wasn't an administrative record supporting the government's determination. Then there was the question on a matter of enforcement priorities. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg brought up the claim that DACA was simply prioritizing how to handle the estimated 11 million million illegal aliens present in the country. Don't you have to set up uh, some kind of category, she asked, since the government doesn't have the resources, so you have to prioritize. Everybody agrees you have to prioritize. Well, Francisco countered that DACA goes far beyond simply diverting resources to higher priority targets, and it actively facilitates violations of the law. Well, Justice uh, Kagan said Obama administration based its decision to implement DACA on the Immigration and Nationality Act grants of broad discretion over national immigration enforcement policy. Well, the inspector general, he replied that the most that uh, uh, that does is it gives you the authority to set policies and priorities and that there's a big leap between that and saying that you can affirmatively facilitate violations of the law by hundreds of thousands of individuals to whom Congress has repeatedly declined a pathway to citizenship. Well, the Supreme Court uh, uh, heard arguments uh, and uh, decision is expected sometime in June. And it wasn't altogether clear by the nature of the questions how the court is likely to rule. But we will follow that story. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 16 minutes after 5 o'clock. Up next, we're going to talk with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. Luis Palau is turning 85 and there's going to be a big party. We want you to come. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, you may not know it, but there's an especial occasion coming up on the 27th and November of November, and we're going to talk with Scott Gilchrist about just that. But before we get to it, I want to introduce Pastor Scott Gilchrist. He has been senior pastor at Southwest Bible Church in the suburb of Portland, really Beaverton, since 1979. He's a frequent speaker at conferences. He has a passion to see God's Word taught and understood, and he does it so well. He's heard daily on the radio right here on KPDQ, the downtown Bible class. He teaches the Bible to the business community in downtown Portland each week at the Portland Art Museum. He was awarded an honorary doctorate by Western Seminary in 2007 and received the first KPDQ Distinguished Broadcaster Award this year at the Pastor Appreciation Breakfast. He and his wife, Christy, were married in 1974, have five grown children and a growing number of grandchildren. He joins us today to talk a bit about the life of Luis Palau and the birthday that's coming up in just a couple of weeks. Scott Gilchrist, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Georgine. It's great to be with you. And let me just say, before we start our conversation about the upcoming event, congratulations on being KPDQ's first distinguished broadcaster uh, awarded that uh, honor at the Pastor's Appreciation Breakfast just a few months ago. It was uh, it was fun for us because as we collaborated on uh, how we should uh, select our first recipient, it was unanimous that uh, you would be our first recipient and just so appreciate the role that you play not only here on KPDQ, but in our community in general. So thank you for your faithfulness well, and congratulations. Well, thank you. It was humbling and, and it was quite a surprise, really. And I've, I, uh, I just am so appreciative of the outreach on the radio that we've been able to have all these years. And uh, I meet people all the time uh, from widespread geographic areas, you know, that, that hear God's word from the radio, and, and it's really always fun for me to know that God is multiplying our efforts that way. So it was it was an honor and, and a humbling one, so thank you. You are so, so welcome. Well, let's talk about downtown Bible class. This is an opportunity for the business community in the Portland downtown area to gather each week, uh, surrounded around God's Word, and somehow you are efficient enough to get people in and out, to have a healthy dose of Bible teaching and lunch together, and to get back to the office on time. This has been going on for, for quite some time. Tell us a little bit about downtown Bible class. Yeah, you know, I had I used to work downtown years ago, and I always thought that that would be something that would could be a very valuable use of the noon hour. And so many years ago, really, we launched it, and it has worked just that way. Mm-hmm. We do keep it tight, uh, but, you know, we just, our whole goal has always been to just bring clear Christ-centered Bible teaching to the marketplace. And so uh, we we keep it very simple, and we do. We have a 30-minute program. Uh, you can get there early, but from, you know, you can get there at noon and get some food and coffee at the ballroom there at the art museum, but for the 30 minutes from 12.15 to 12.45, I just teach teach the Bible and uh, try to always make Christ the centerpiece. Uh, you don't have to make him the centerpiece. Mm-hmm. He is the centerpiece, but always try to make it clear that if this was someone's first time, they would know what it means to know Christ as they leave. And uh, that's it's been a great opportunity for these many years, and I'm very thankful for it. Well, it's been a great blessing to many in the Portland 
uh, downtown area. And those who commute in just to be a part of that Bible study. I know many of us here at the radio station from time to time make our way to the downtown area as well. The the purpose of the downtown Bible class is consistent. It's always the same. It's reliable. And you can uh, know that you can arrive and leave at a time that will allow you to get back to your office in time to continue with your workday. But something different is going to happen on the 27th of this month. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, we're excited about it as as uh, this the November 27th is actually Luis Palau's 85th birthday. And so I invited Luis to come celebrate with us and he is graciously able to do that and so we're going to have a birthday party for Luis. Uh and those of you who know Luis's situation, we're so thrilled that he is still vibrant and healthy. He's faced real health challenges these last uh, 2 years really. But God has kept him here and kept him vibrant, and 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 we're really looking forward to celebrating his 85th birthday with him. You know, it's thrilling to consider, you know, two years ago when it was uh, made public that he had been diagnosed with, with cancer. I think many people suspected that his life would end fairly quickly, but God has graciously granted him much more time than, uh, and, and, you know, a lot of people have been praying, but much more time than we uh, thought might be possible. Can you give us a bit of an update on how he's doing in, in terms of his physical health? Yeah, he, <clears throat> like you said, two years ago, uh, you know, the doctor said he probably wouldn't see the next Christmas. And uh, so, you know, and he he was feeling pretty low in the spring of 2018, uh, went through his treatments and that sort of thing. And But, you know, God just uh, answered a lot of prayer. And we last year, actually, at this time or earlier in the fall, uh, I'd, we had he and I had planned to have a men's night at our church and uh, he wasn't able to because of his illness earlier in the year, but we rescheduled it, and November 27th worked out, and then when I realized that it was his 84th birthday, I said, oh, man, we put it on your birthday. He said, I can't think of a better way to spend it. (laughs) You know how he is. So we had a wonderful time last year uh, with about 500 men crammed into our gymnasium, uh, and Luis proclaimed Christ. And then at that time, he was still thinking that, uh, you know, this would probably be his last Christmas last year. But God has sustained him, and now the doctors are giving him cautious encouragement that he might see more than one more Christmas. So he's thrilled at that and using his time and energy so well. I'm just so thankful for him. And I was thinking about it. It's you know, it's the Wednesday right on the eve of Thanksgiving. How fitting Hmm. Because we're giving thanks for Luis, not just his health, but the obvious way God has used him over the years and his faithfulness to proclaim the simple and clear gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, I've known Luis for years and so thrilled that he's finishing well. And now, of course, it's double Thanksgiving that his health is such that he's able to continue to preach and proclaim Christ. Yeah, that he is uh, sustained. I want to talk a little bit later about uh, his legacy. You know, this has been a big year for him. The movie has come out that tells yeah. his life story and ministry. Uh, I remember that he was the speaker at um, Mission Connection Northwest, and there was some question just moments before he was to take to the stage. He was having some uh, respiratory uh, difficulties, and there was a, uh, a possibility that his son would take the, the podium for him, and he decided mm-hmm. at the last minute that he felt that he could uh, he could uh, take to this to the platform and uh, you know there was a possibility that he wouldn't finish out but he 
stood behind that podium and began to speak. And while I know it was challenging for him that he wasn't at his best physically, when the evangelist took to the mic, the gospel was clearly proclaimed. And there was just some vibrancy about him that that is characteristic of a man who has been with Jesus and who has not allowed his his physical limitations and his health uh, to prevent him from doing the thing that his life has been all about for so many decades. It was so thrilling to me. Uh, to see that in him, knowing the backstory of of how he was struggling and just on the verge of not being uh, able to physically uh, keep that commitment. And I'm certain that when he finished, it was very difficult and he probably suffered as a consequence, but he has been so faithful under whatever the circumstance happens to be. It's such an encouragement to have watched his ministry and to watch him now. I couldn't agree more. And I know that he's not a complainer and he doesn't like to talk about himself Mm -mm. and his health, but but he, uh, I know that he's going, you know, just like you said, that it takes a lot of energy out of him. But, you you know, when I had lunch with him the other day, and he, it's just like he, you'd never really know it. He's just got his usual zeal and energy. And uh, so I am very thankful in the, along that same vein with you. And even before he was diagnosed, I was uh, talking with him and think, thanking the Lord for how, he has remained true to the gospel and to the biblical gospel that God called him to proclaim over all these decades. And that isn't always the case, you know, but it's so nice to see someone finish well. Yes, way. yes. And uh, he's doing it. And then in the midst of this physical challenge, he's doing it again. So it's it's going to be doubly fun to celebrate his birthday. And, and I'm so thankful you're coming to to help lead us in, in happy birthday. We're going to sing to him, and that'll be great fun. I'm, I'm so looking forward to that. I've been practicing. I'm working on the words, happy birthday or something. Anyway, I'll know it by then. Work <laughs> quick, on the lyrics, will you? <laughs> quick break. We'll be back. <laughs> You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Pastor Scott Gilchrist, the 2019 KPDQ Distinguished Broadcaster Award recipient. We're talking about the downtown Bible class and the fact that Luis Palau's birthday happens to fall on the same day that the downtown Bible class meets at the Portland Art Museum. And so we are going to have a party. I would love to see this um, museum packed out with people who just are there to say happy birthday. We love you. We appreciate you. And to bless the socks off of Luis Palau. I would. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would too, and we want to invite all your listeners and to come and bring friends. It's just going to be a great time. The sunken ballroom is a very fun location. We're there every week, and uh, we just want to pack it out on the 27th to celebrate with Luis. Now, you know, it might be a little bit inconvenient for you to try to find parking, but you think about the many years of faithful ministry of Luis Palau, the impact that he's had on our city. I think about the festival that was on the waterfront and the the various the, the churches that he's spoken through to in our community. If we could just maybe put ourselves out a little bit in order to bless him, I really want to encourage you to do that because some people just think, uh, I don't know if I want to go downtown. Well, that's where it is. That's where he's going to be. So let me challenge you <laughs> to go downtown for this event to bless uh, Luis Palau. I think he's definitely worth it. Now, tell us a little bit about uh, what's going to happen at this birthday party. Well, we're going to have some greetings, some special greetings that he doesn't even know about yet from uh, other places, uh, but I won't say much except we'll to keep say that, that a secret. Gonna be, 
we'll keep it a secret, but it's going to be exciting, I think. And uh, you are going to come. I, I asked you to come sing Happy Birthday, and then I thought we ought to just have a little mini concert ahead of time. So uh, we're going to have you and and your sister Donna singing uh, some praise songs as people come in. It'll be a festive occasion. And then, per usual, we'll start right at 12.15. We have a 30-minute program, and we're going to celebrate and give thanks for Luis's life and ministry and recognize him, and we're going to blow some candles out and have some fun that way. You're going to lead us in uh, singing Happy Birthday, uh, as long as you've got those lyrics figured out. <laughs> and uh, you and Donna can lead us in a beautiful rendition of that, I know. And then we're going to let Luis, we're going to put him to work. He, he he would love to spend his 85th birthday preaching Christ, as he has for 85, well, not 85 years, but over six decades, he's been all about that. Yeah. And so we're going to let him proclaim Christ. So you can come and bring people that don't know Christ and and a chance to meet Luis personally and a chance to celebrate with him. So it's going to be a great time. It really is. You know, you used the phrase a few times, finish well. I think as I am getting older, I think more about finishing well. I don't want the latter part of my life to to peter out with ineffectiveness and, and you know, backing off of opportunities to, to minister the gospel and to share uh, his good news. Luis Palau ha- is finishing well. Can you talk a little bit about his legacy? I and mean, we know some of the big picture, but it, it's a challenge for all of us to, uh, to, to purpose in our hearts, to finish well and to honor God right up to the end. Yeah, he really is doing a great job of that. And you know, he's always been about Christ the whole time I've mm-hmm. known him, and he any opportunity he ha- can, he'll take to preach Christ and proclaim Christ. He does it in a winsome way, and he's always used the Scripture and stayed biblical in his proclamation, and God has been pleased to just use him. He, It's estimated that he's spoken to over a billion people, and uh, as you mentioned, the movie that came out about him this year and the book was a very good book. Uh, very motivating and encouraging, but what's when you mention this matter of finishing well, he really he really has, and his ministry has continued to expand really throughout all the decades. I remember, yeah. uh, you know, when when he's made steps that we wondered how that would go, and God has just blessed, and as he's moved into China and so many different places around the world with the gospel in just a bold and uncompromising way. And he continues to do that. So uh, when you think of finishing well, I agree with you. He's, he's, he's a very good example for all of us because God doesn't leave us here any longer than he can use us. And so we want to be useful to him right up to the time he whisks us into heaven. And I've talked to Luis about that personally and publicly these last couple of years as he's gotten kind of a wake-up call in the sense that he's been healthy all his life and he's always talked about death he said you know I talk about death a lot but now I'm facing it and he's had a peace from the Lord uh, knowing that his sins are forgiven and that he's uh, his entrance into heaven is is because of his Savior Jesus yes. Christ and he's proclaiming it I think with even a, a deeper passion perhaps than ever it's hard to say that because he's always been passionate but I can I know when I've been with him in these settings that you were mentioning people are listening carefully because it's real yeah. as he knows that his time is short. 
you know, it, it, Luis Palau has made a decision in his latter years as an 83-year-old man, an 84-year-old, soon-to-be 85-year-old man, a decision that I'm going to finish well. I'm going to continue to do what God has called me to do. And it's such an encouragement to me to consider that God has a purpose for those who are in their uh, their elder years, that we, we're not just called to sit on the sidelines. He's made a, he's been intentional and purposeful about finishing strong and finishing well to the degree that he is able. And that that's just... I want that to be my legacy. I'm not going to be on a stage, you know, speaking before millions of people. But if I can be faithful in a, in my prayer life, if I can be faithful in opening God's word on a regular basis, sharing his goodness with whomever God gives me the opportunity to speak with, to finish well and finish strong. I think that's an encouragement to all of us that there's no expiration date. When God calls you home, then your assignment is finished. But until then, there's work for us to do. And what an example he has set of just that. That's so true. And I think, I really think that when when a person comes to Christ, the Holy Spirit puts that desire within mm-hmm. us that we really do at every age. I was with a group of young men in their 30s uh, this week, and we were looking at Paul's challenge uh, to Timothy to finish well, as even as he was finishing his course. And he was on death row, and he knew his time of his departure was soon. But there's something, I think the Holy Spirit uses that because we know we we should invest ourselves, as you said, till he takes us home. And it's it's very, very encouraging when you see someone like Luis doing it. But as you said, we're each called to a different role, and, and our listeners, uh, every one of us has an opportunity to use our life each day until he takes us home. So I, I think it'll be very encouraging as we celebrate uh Thursday or Wednesday, uh, the 27th, it'll be very encouraging for all of us in that way, because it's always good to see it fleshed out in a life. Absolutely. Well, I've been talking about this uh, birthday party that's coming up, and I'll continue to do that until uh, the day of the event itself. But again, we're talking about Wednesday, November 27th at the Portland Art Museum. We are going to celebrate the 85th birthday of Louise Palau. And I can't think of anybody who's more worthy of that kind of vigorous celebration because he is a man of great uh, energy for God. So you are encouraged to come, and it might it might be a bit of a challenge. You might need to leave a little earlier than you're used to to make sure you... Uh, can arrange for parking or, or transit or, or whatever you need to do to get there. We really want to encourage all of you to come. It's a big facility. There's room for lots of us. Let's just bless the socks off of uh, Luis Palau on his 85th birthday. Uh, you know, he is with honor in his hometown, and we want to demonstrate uh, that on the on number 85 uh, coming up on the 27th of November. Well, thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to do that and to spend uh, his birthday uh, together with him. So we're really looking forward to that. And uh, again, I'll continue to remind our listeners so that we can show up in big numbers. Well, thank you, Georgine. We're so glad you can be with us. And Andrew is going to be there, his son. And it's just going to be a great time in in many ways. So I just agree. I hope all your listeners will come and and, uh, bless, bless Louise. Thank you so much, Pastor Scott. Thank you, Georgine. See you soon. Again, uh, Scott Gilchrist, Senior Pastor at Southwest Bible Church. I would encourage you, if you want to bring a card, something that he can take home with him and read later, just say, you know, if you have a story or um, an example of a time when Luis Palau has been especially um, a blessing to you, you've been encouraged or inspired or challenged, uh, that might also be a real blessing to him when he is finished with the day, he can sit down and uh, read what you have written and once again be reminded of uh, the, the fruit of his 
um, faithfulness. I didn't have the heart to ask if there's going to be cake. Should, should I have asked? Would that have been rude to ask if there's cake? I'll try to find out and let you know. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Mark David Hall. He is the author of Did America Have a Christian Founding? Separating Modern Myth from Historical Truth. And what does it mean to say that America has a Christian founding? Does it mean that Americans were all Christian? That the principles upon which the founding documents and the founders relied upon were Christian? We'll talk with uh, Professor Mark David Hall about that when he joins me here Tomorrow, Well, a group of Stanford University students claim that having conservative commentator Ben Shapiro on campus to give a speech would put people at risk. The group that calls itself the Coalition of Concerned Students made the claim on a flyer advertising a silent rally to protest his Stanford College Republicans sponsored speech, which took place on the 7th of November. We are tired of Stanford administration's complicity in putting black, brown, trans, queer and Muslim students at risk by allowing SCR to bring Ben Shapiro to campus. The flyer, a copy of which was obtained by Campus Reform, read. Now, how African-Americans, for example, are put at risk by hearing a a view that may uh, not uh, comport with their own, I couldn't tell you, but they went on to say, we do not protest because we are too sensitive to hear opinions we don't like. The flyer continues, we protest because we are strong enough to defend ourselves. The logic escapes me, but I'll give you the opportunity to decide for yourselves. The flyer also asks participants to wear black, if possible, and features a graphic of what looks like bug spray with the title Ben Be Gone, spelled without an E, uh, with uh, images of both bugs and Shapiro's face on the bottle. Well, the Stanford Review, the school's independent newspaper, published an editorial calling on the coalition to stop using the graphic, claiming that it was a play on anti-Semitic tropes about extermination because Ben Shapiro is Jewish. Well, the coalition also wrote an op-ed that appeared in Stanford's official student newspaper, the Stanford Daily, further explaining its opposition to the speech. Another year of Stanford's administration refusing to listen to its marginalized students as we beg the institution to stop providing a platform for fascist talking heads to stand upon, it states. Another year of disappointment, but not surprise, as the administration continues to confound the values of open discourse and the perpetuation of unchallenged violent speech. Okay, confound the values of open discourse. We don't want him to be heard here. And the perpetuation of unchallenged violent speech. Now, he doesn't uh, speak about violence, uh, but uh, nonetheless, you can't challenge someone who's not heard. Well, by repeating, repeatedly inviting speakers who incite violence against some of Stanford's most marginalized communities, which Ben Shapiro does not, the administration actively sends the message that only certain students, communities, and types of dialogue are valued on this campus, which is precisely what they are advocating for. Uh, now I will be the first to say that... Um, Shapiro may or may not uh, comport with your view on many issues. For example, as a libertarian, uh, the uh, social conservatism might be unappealing. As a Democrat, a social conservative might be unappealing. In in fact, um, there are all kinds of views that are supposed to be on campus with the free exchange of ideas, not only challenging individuals to consider their own point of view, but sharpening their skills, uh, their rhetorical and thinking skills to argue against those views uh, that will serve them well in the future. But still, to be clear, um, a peaceful protest is not a bad thing, but to suggest that certain voices should not be heard because of the points of views they hold 
uh, because it makes certain students, as uh, this particular group says, are at risk by having someone speak uh, in with views that they disagree with. Uh, meanwhile, Disney's new streaming service is warning fans that they may encounter outdated cultural depictions while watching some of its older content. After the launch on Tuesday of Disney Plus, users noticed that some of the company's classic content, such as Dumbo, that was produced in 1941, The Aristocrats in 1970, Jungle Book 1967, and the original Lady and the Tramp 1955, are con- all contain a warning at the end of their respective descriptions. The warnings caution sensitive fans that what they are about to watch contains racial portrayals that might be triggering, triggering for children. Uh, The program is uh, presented as originally created. The warning at the end of each description reads it may contain outdated cultural depictions. Well, that that may be and most likely is the case. Well, the content warning seems to stem from the films having characters and in some cases songs that contain stereotypes. Representatives from Disney Plus didn't uh, respond to uh, inquiries from the media about specifics, but they did know Dumbo has been criticized in the past for depicting two wisecracking crows that speak in stereotypical African-American voices uh, played by a white actor, which, of course, if you're viewing it, you wouldn't know who the actor was. The Jungle Book suffers from the same issue with some of its characters, particularly a young uh, group of monkeys being portrayed as with negative dated um, characteristics. Uh, meanwhile, Lady and the Tramp features the infamous We Are Siamese song performed by two cats speaking in stereotypical Asian accents drawn with large buck teeth. Well, it seems Disney has been keeping a close eye on its content now that it's uh, presenting a single streaming platform to a 2019 audience. When Disney Plus launched, it did so with a live action remake of Lady and the Tramp that replaces the offensive cats with songs with a different duo, uh, the Hollywood Reporter noted that in April, Disney, um, their biggest cultural blemish, Song of the South, will not be featured on the platform at all. And although it won an Oscar for its original song, uh, Zippity Doodah, in the 1946 film, has been criticized for decades of its uh, depiction of post-Civil War African Americans. Even prior to the launch of Disney+, Plus, the company has uh, not released Song of the South on home video in the United States. So uh, the rating system is wholly unreliable, but they now have a different system uh, that meets uh, standards for the general public when it comes to politically correct thinking. And by the way, there's a scam uh, that you might find on Facebook. It's a scam that warns that uh, uh, that offers rather a coupon uh, from Costco. But Costco is warning that it is a scam and say you need to stop sharing this fake seventy five dollar coupon on social media now. Well, the coupon claims everyone who shares it will be sent a $75 voucher, but the company notified members via Facebook that this is a hoax. Now, did anybody really think that by reposting an image on Facebook, Costco would send them a $75 gift card? Well, an image of what is said to be the Costco coupon, it's been shared on social media, but the company warns, eh, don't do it. They posted a message on their Facebook page. This was on Tuesday, urging customers to stop sharing the fake coupon, saying Costco is not giving away $75 coupons. I would love for that to have happened, but no. The company urged fans and members of the chain of um, membership-only warehouse clubs that this offer is a scam and in no way affiliated with Costco. The company says that is to, uh, this isn't the first time that they've heard of a hoax like this and wasn't aware of this instance of the scam until customers warned them it was happening again. Well, the fake coupon, which looks quite real, 
has been re- a recurring problem for that retailer. The scam works by promising social media users that a voucher will be sent to them if they share the image of a fake Costco coupon said to be worth $75. Don't do it, Costco said. Uh, a version of it, uh, it appears to look quite valid, lots of small prints, check out, and it's got a barcode so that when you go to Costco after having printed uh, and reposted the uh, the coupon, uh, entitles you to $75. But again, Costco says that is not the case. So if you have uh, posted, reposted, seen, and been tempting to post this uh, Costco coupon, it's not going to do you any good at all. A reminder on Thursday, Mark David Hall will be my guest. He's the author of Did America Have a Christian Founding? Separating Modern Myth from Historical Truth. The book is published by Thomas Nelson. He'll join us uh, tomorrow on the program. We're also going to hear from Wes Walterman from the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, which begins its season next weekend. Not this coming, but the following weekend. So we'll... Uh, fill you in on all the important details there. On Friday, we will take a look at the lighter side of the news and hope you will join us for just that. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.